We will now have a reading from God's word. Romans six fifteen through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks Dear God. Hey, good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us this morning. Those of you who are alive and present, um, I think we have some folks out in the tent, potentially. I don't know, honestly. Um, but if you're out there, good morning. And uh, and online, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, I uh, If I end up sitting down, I'm I'm not sick. Uh, I ran a long race yesterday, and so, um, you know, we'll see. It's fun. I'm feeling fine, but uh, if I need to sit, I'm going to, so don't, just don't pay attention. All right, next Saturday, May 8th, is um, uh, an event for our women's ministry. Uh, our women's ministry, man, they're kicking it. They're back up and going, and so I want to let you know, next Saturday night, there's going to be a worship night. It's going to be an hour spent in song and in the word. And uh, the goal uh, is, is not only, of course, to worship the Lord, but more to refresh your souls, right? It'll be an incredible way for you to come and just be engaged by the gospel and the presence of others who are also being engaged. So next Saturday night, I would encourage you, there's, there was and will be a link put into the, uh, the weekly newsletter. Um, and if, if you're not getting that in your email, of course, you can go to the website and um, uh, the information is, is posted there. All right, y'all, let me remind you, Easter is past, but the reality is not. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Isn't that good news? It's like every time. It's like, whoa, that's still good news. It is incredible, y'all. It changes, changes everything. And we continue to study Romans 6 and, and moving into 7 and 8. And uh, we're looking at actually some of the implications and the benefits that come to us because of the resurrection, right? In this section, Paul is unpacking a lot of this incredible truth that comes to us because not only was Jesus delivered up for our transgressions, he was raised for our justification. All right, this morning, um, I'm going to start with a little story that comes from John 5. John 5 is, uh, I love the Gospel of John, I love all the Gospels, but uh, the Gospel of John is um, a real delight to me because John is a natural storyteller, very poetic, um, very conscious of, of how these stories carry power and and uh, in John 5, we read the story of Jesus healing a paralytic who is laying by the tool of Bethesda. Um, so this is a 
large pool, five portico roof over the top of it, and 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 ill people, um, paralytics, um, and and those with maladies and illnesses would gather, and and it was it was kind of the rumor that. Uh, when the surface of the water was stirred by a wind, the first person who got into the water would be healed. Um, and so you can guess it was generally the people who were less ill that were able to get into the water more quickly. And, um, and with all of the chaos and, and all the rest of that, um, who knows who actually got there first. And, uh, you know, did the Lord ever do any healing there? Who knows? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. You know, it's, the Lord, it's the Lord's business. Um, but that's what they gathered there for, right? They gathered there because that was the rumor that, that ill people could be, could be healed. And, and, uh, there was a guy who was paralytic, right? So he couldn't move, you know, like, like he was there, but there was no way for him to get to the water, which of course informs a little bit of the background of the story. But the part of the story I want to focus on, the Lord does heal him, by the way. Uh, the Lord, you know, says, rise, take up your mat and walk, and, and he does. It's, it's a wonderful end of the story. But the story begins with a really strange encounter. Jesus looks at him, and he just says, do you want to be made well? I mean, what a strange question, right? Jesus is, is walking through the portico. He's surrounded by all of these people who are, are sick, uh, who, who, who have maladies, who have illnesses, and he looks at this guy and he says, do you want to be made well? And, and we're like, you know, duh. Who wouldn't want to be made well? Right? I mean, seriously, who wouldn't want to be made well? I mean, Jesus, what, what kind of filler? Like, is that kind of like just us? Hey, how are you? Don't really tell me. Right? I'm just trying to be polite. Right? Is this Jesus' way of kind of just, you know, broaching the subject? Right? I don't think so. I think it's actually an incredibly compelling question, right? Who wouldn't want to be made well? well? Think about it, you guys. Can you think of any reasons why he wouldn't want to be made well? Think about it. He'd been a paralytic for 38 years. You learn a lot of habits in 38 years. You find a way of doing life over the course of 38 years. And as difficult as it is to be a paralytic, how potentially terrifying would it be to no longer be paralyzed? Right? If you're healed, everything changes. People will treat you differently. Which in some cases is good, because especially in that culture and at that time, the religious elite um, really looked down on and treated ill people poorly. They just assumed that was always God's judgment. If you, if you had a physical malady or an illness or a, some sort of, of disability, you know, they, they just assumed that was God's judgment on you and therefore you deserved it. So yeah, there were definitely some ways I'm sure that, that he would benefit from having been healed and be treated better. But also, um, the very moment he picked up his pallet and started walking, he, he's just normal like everybody else. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he just blends in. No one's going to give you any extra help. No one's going to give you any special treatment. Like, you've been laying there for 38 years dreaming about, man, if I could walk, I would this and I would that. Now, it, you actually have to do it. And, and people aren't going to be giving you handouts. And people aren't going to be giving you you know, that kind of, oh, I'm sure your life is hard. I mean, that's all gone. <laughs> huh. 
right? Suddenly you have to work. You've been dreaming about it forever, but now you actually have to do it. And all those old habits you learned to survive, right? They just don't work anymore. Those habits that you learned to survive when you were paralytic don't make sense anymore. From how you went through your day, from how you took care of yourself, to, to how you needed others to do things for you instead of you doing it for them, to, to how you earned your living, to how you valued and found your worth in culture and in society, how you related to other people, who you identified with as friends, and who, who you identified as threats. It's all different. The, the way you did life just doesn't make sense anymore. Can you imagine how disorienting this had to be? Can you imagine how terrifying in many ways this had to be? Do you want to be made well? You have to relearn how to do life. You have to relearn how to find your sense of security. Your sense of worthiness. Your sense of significance. Your sense of comfort. I mean, it's all different. It's all changed. Do you want to be made well? That wasn't just a random, meaningless question. Because the reality is, there are a lot of people who don't want to be made well. And if we're honest... That includes us. Being made well. Being set free into grace is terrifying. Many of us, and I would say all of us at some points, let's, let's stop making groups of us and them. <laughs> all of us at times fight really hard to stay stuck. All of us at times fight really hard not to be set loose into the terrifying freedom of being made well. So yeah, um, as we're going to look at that in our, in our text this morning, we're in slavery. Um, and, and yeah, it is true that we spend most of our time longing for what we don't have. Dreaming about what our life would be like if... if if we didn't have certain behaviors or certain patterns or certain limitations or, or whatever, right? But the reality is also true that we're scared and we're tired. And honestly, our little prisons of self-pity or pride or resentment or short-term pleasure offer a really strange comfort and familiarity. We feel safe in there. That's what we know. All right? Freedom's terrifying. Everything's changed. People, it's just terrifying. Um, so what we end up doing, and this is what I'm, you know, we're going to kind of get into this a little bit, but you know what we end up doing is we often come to God saying, you know what, God, I need a little bit of help here. I don't really want to be made well. I just want to be made a little bit more comfortable in my sickness. I don't really want to be made well. I don't want to be delivered out of this prison. I just want you to help make the cell a little more comfortable. Like, could you just give me a little more self-control so I don't despise myself as much? Could you just give me a little bit more anger management so, so that I wouldn't fly off the handle as much? 
Would, would you just give me a, a, you know, a little bit more, um, uh, a few more people around me who are going to encourage me so I don't feel as discouraged and exposed as much? I don't want to really be delivered into the terrifying freedom of grace. I, I just want a little help. I don't want grace. Grace requires me to be completely helpless. Grace requires me to be completely dependent. That's, that's a terrifying form of freedom. I don't, no thank you. I, I kind of like the paralysis of my self-dependence and autonomy. I, I kind of like the sickness of, of me being, or at least pretending I'm in control. But you know what? God doesn't give us help. He absolutely refuses to give us help. He gives us grace. God has no desire to make us more comfortable in ourselves. He wants to deliver us from them. He isn't here to make us comfortable. He is here to set us free. All right, so let's take a look at our text. Um, Verses 16 through 19 explore one big analogy, right? Let's just reread. We'll start at verse 15. The compelling question, just reread these. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented the members, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification, right? So, so Paul is saying, um, I have an analogy here, right down in verse 19, where he, was, where he was like, hey, I'm speaking in human terms because of your limitations. What he's saying is, look, I'm doing my best to come up with an analogy to help you understand the spiritual truth. If you understood the spiritual truth, I wouldn't need the analogy. <laughs> you would just get it, right? But this is not going to be intuitive to you. You're going to have a hard time getting this. So I'm, I'm going to, you know, because of your human limitations, because you're not there yet, which, that's not him looking down on us. That's not him insulting us. It's just him speaking of a reality that, that honestly, part of the reason we're stuck on ourselves is we don't see him as cells. Part of the reason we stay in slavery to the wrong things is because we don't see it as slavery. We're deceived into thinking it's freedom. Right? He's like, so look, I'm going to come up with an analogy to help you kind of get a framework for what I'm describing here, what I'm talking about, this deep and powerful spiritual truth. So he's trying to come up with an adequate metaphor to help us understand. And if we really understood, we can, we can move into its, its freedom. So the metaphor is slavery, right? That's the metaphor that he, he uses. More specifically, the idea of bond slavery or being a bond servant, uh, which really makes no sense to us in our modern context, but was a very real part of the ancient world. Um, in the ancient world, slavery was a little bit different than what we think of, right? American slavery... Um, the history of American slavery was unique uh, and uniquely debased, uh, purely demonic. Uh, American slavery uh, was what's called chattel slavery. The slaves were, were owned very much like you would own cattle. Uh, you could breed them. You could sell them. 
you could you could um, you could do whatever you want. You can kill them. It didn't matter. You owned them, right? There was absolutely no human dignity. There was absolutely no human rights. And so, as a result, uh, American slavery was uh, ridiculously and fundamentally evil. In the ancient slave world, and in, in the way the ancient uh, world did did slavery, um, it, it was still cruel. I'm not saying it wasn't. It was still debased and violent. Um, nobody, you know, being a slave wasn't wasn't anybody's first choice in life, right? You could become a slave by being caught in battle. If your city was sacked, you could become a slave by going into debt. If you owed somebody a certain amount of money, you could be put in slavery for a certain amount of time to pay off to pay off your debt. And then once your debt was paid off, you'd be set free. You could even become a slave by choice. And that was called bond service or bond slavery. You would become a bond servant when you willingly entered into a relationship of slavery. So in the ancient world, remember that the home was the marketplace, right? Our, our modern sense of having a place of home and then there's this place away from home that's called the marketplace. And these are two totally separate entities. That didn't exist, right? That's a result of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, it's a very modern concept of how to do life uh, and culture. In the ancient world, the home was the marketplace. And, and, and as a result, there were, there were often large compounds. And, and in that compound, you had uh, somebody's family, but you also had all the workers that were part of that person's, the broader entourage. And, and so in these compounds, you had multiple generations of a single family. You had, you had multiple generations of people who worked with you, some of whom were freemen, who, who had um, decided to work with you, others who were slaves or bond servants. If you wanted to enter into a relationship with one of these homes, you could voluntarily say, I, I bond myself to you. And there was a ritual for that. You would take your ear, your lobe, and you would actually nail it to the doorpost. Right? So body modification way, way, way back when... Um, not for aesthetic reasons, right? You're not going to walk around with a house attached to your ear. But it was a way to mark you because once you had that hole in your ear, people knew you were a bondservant, right? That you had willingly um, tied yourself to a home because essentially what you were saying was, um, this is a good place for me to be. This is a good family for me to connect myself to. This is, I am going to willingly submit myself to, to the industry of this home and in response... This home is going to take on responsibility um, for, for my care, right? And, and so as a result, a bond servant willingly submitted themselves uh, to this condition um, so that they could become part of the extended family. And, um, and so they were slaves, right? They were slaves. Now, they weren't slaves like we think of it in the American sense, but, but they willingly became bond servants, it was a way of committing themselves to service. You presented yourself for service. In verse 16, to set this whole thing up, this whole analogy about bond servanthood, whose who's bond servant are you going to be? Who are you going to present yourself to? Right? Because that's the context. You're either going to present yourself as a servant to one home or to another. Paul sets this whole analogy up uh, with, a, with a question. Right in verse 15, what then? Are we going to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? He's, he's in essence restating the question that he asked in verse 1 that we've already dealt with. A little bit of a nuanced difference. Um, 
And, and then he uses this analogy to answer it, right? That of course, the answer is, no, nah, no way. We're not, we're not going to present ourselves to sin, right? Just because we're no longer under the law. Um, by no means, right? So here's the thing. I, I, I'm going to come back to this theme starting next week. Because this theme keeps popping up. And, and at the beginning of chapter 7, Paul's, Paul's going to take this and, and really kind of um, hinge on this theme, right? So we're going to come back to this idea of, of how this all relates to, to the law, right? Uh, but at this point, I just want you to see that Paul responds, because you've become a slave, um, you know, here's the thing, is, is no, you, you don't want to present yourself to sin because you've been freed from, from sin, right? You used to be an involuntary slave, you were in Adam, and you had no choices. And now that you are in Christ, why would you continue to present yourself as a slave to your former master, to, to the kingdom of death, to the kingdom of loss and deceit, right? In verse 13, if you remember from last week, he called us to present our members, right? It says, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now he's changing that to this analogy of slavery, right? Nail your ear to the right doorpost. Right? Don't, don't go on presenting yourself to the wrong master. You've been freed. You didn't have a choice before Christ did what he did, before he died and rose again on your behalf. But now you don't belong to the house of Adam anymore. You belong to the house of Christ. You aren't in the realm of sin and death and law anymore. You stand in grace. Present yourself to the right master. Okay, interesting thing that we need to, especially as Westerners, pay attention to. Paul doesn't even try to imagine a world in which we aren't servants which is so offensive to us as Westerners, as Americans. We so prize our independence, our autonomy, right? It is part of our cultural heritage. It is part of the cultural mythology that helps define who we are. It's, it's part of our conception of genuine strength, right? A strong person is an independent person. A strong person is an autonomous person. Somebody who pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps. Somebody who sets their own destination. Who achieves what they want to achieve in their own strength. Paul doesn't even try to imagine a world in which that could exist. Because y'all, it is mythology. It is mythology. It is our cultural mythology, but it is mythology. Right? The reality of it is that we're always a servant to somebody. The only question is who we're going to serve. You're like, Steve, no, I'm not a servant to anybody. I'm an American, right? I like hot dogs on, never mind. Um, I get in trouble when I start doing the whole rambling thing. I'm just not going to go there. I'm a little tired today. Um, the reality is sin presents an alluring lie that we can be independent. That's sin, y'all. Sin presents an alluring deception that we can be autonomous. That we can be our own masters. Right? That we, that, that in fact, that's what freedom is. 
That, that freedom is autonomy, that freedom is independence, that freedom is me. It's me getting to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Nobody gets to tell me. I set the boundaries of my own life. I mark the destination of my own journey. I'm not dependent on you. I'm a self-made man. That is a deceptive lie of sin. Bottom line is, you're always, and I'm not going to get into the whole self-made man thing. There's no such thing. Uh, Every self-made man has stepped on the props of a thousand others that helped them get where they are. Um, Nobody made it on their own. We, it's just, you just ignore the people who helped you get where you are and claimed all the credit. Okay. Um, But, but beyond that, spiritually, you are always a bondservant of some master. You know why? Because God created you primarily as a desiring being. Right? We've, we've looked at this. That, that sin isn't the behavior. Behavioral sin is the fruit, not the root. Right? We have desires for deep things. Right? Because we were created to, to live in the presence of a, of a God, a good God who's always pouring himself out to us. We were created to desire those good things. To feast on those good things. Right? Our desires then move through our hope. How is this desire going to be satisfied? And that leads to a behavior. Right? And that's why autonomy is a lie. Freedom through personal independence is, is a deceptive invitation to death. Freedom through personal independence is a deceptive invitation to death. What is death? We've talked about this a thousand times over the last couple of months. Death is separation, right? Physical death is a separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is, is the separation of, of the created from the creator, right? We die spiritually, therefore later we die physically. Death is separation, which means life is connection. Life is, is being able to move into the presence of love, to be loved and to love in response. Life is, is being connected to God, who is love and the giver of all good gifts. Life is the ability to connect with one another and share the goodness of God with one another in in community with one another. Connection is life and love is true wealth. Y'all, this was Satan's masterstroke in Genesis 3. He packaged death as life. And he sold it to them. Here's autonomy. You don't have to be humbly dependent on God. You can be like God. You don't have to receive from God. You can stand independent from God. And that's true life. He took death. And as a master marketer, repackaged it as life. Right? He, 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 he sold the lie that independence is freedom. That autonomy is strength. Y'all love is freedom. Community is strength. Satan could only pull off this deceit by hiding the reality of how we are wired. You are always presenting yourself to someone or something to try to find life. Always. You are 
always presenting yourself to someone or something, right? We, sometimes that's called worship, right? When we pour ourselves out to something and ask it to give us something in return. The only question is what you're going to pour yourself out to, right? Some of you, it's your jobs. Some of you, it's, it's your uh, a key relationship. Some of you, it's your success. Some of you, it's, it's your ability to, to, to have a big enough 401k. For some of you, it's, it's, it's your ability to be beautiful or, or to have physical attributes. For some of you, it's, it's being self-controlled enough that, that, that you, can, you, can, you can hopefully eventually somewhere get to a point where you have enough self-respect for yourself that you're not beating yourself up constantly. We're always pouring ourselves out to something. We're always presenting ourselves to something. You know why? Because we are desiring beings. We desire significance. We desire security. We desire comfort. We desire worthiness of love. And we are always looking for something to meet that desire. We are hungering beings. What does hunger make you do? It makes you get food. When you hunger, you pursue the thing that you think will satisfy that hunger. You are driven by it. Now, now I have very, very good friends who have suffered from the disorder called anorexia, right? They're still driven by the same exact desire, but it's a disordered desire now. They're driven to food, but instead of running to food, they run to the absence of food because they think that's what's going to give them what they most deeply desire. You're still driven. We are hungering beings, desiring beings, and we will continually present ourselves to what we think will satisfy those desires. Y'all, independence and autonomy are illusions. You are not a self-made man and you are not the master of yourself. You are always serving someone or something to quote the great theologian Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Some of you are like, who's Bob Dylan? And I don't know what you're talking about. That's all right. Put it in theological terms. Um, the historian Ashley Null summarized Thomas Cranmer's theology this way. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. We think of ourselves as rational beings who make choices about life and pursue what we value. We are not rational beings. By the time you get to the stage of trying to rationalize your choices, you have already made the choice. What the heart loves, the will chooses. And what the will chooses, the mind justifies. We are looking at the end of the process, not the beginning. We are driven by our desires. You are, listen to me, the most fundamental desire you have is for love. The most fundamental basic drive you have is for love. You know why? Because that's the desire under the desires. You want significance? And you're chasing your job, and that's why your job will never actually satisfy your need for significance. No number of promotions, no number of awards can ever meet the need. You know why? Because your need for significance can only be met by love. Has there ever been a moment you felt more significant than when somebody you loved looked at you and loved you in return? When your child looked into your eyes? When, when your friend looked into your face, has anything ever made you feel more significant 
than when somebody you deeply valued looked at you and saw you and said, I love you. Has anything ever made you feel more comfort than someone coming to you in grace, giving you love you didn't, surprising love that you didn't think you deserved? You know what I'm saying? Like, like you knew that, that you acted ugly, you said something ugly, you did something ugly, and they showed up and they just gave you the unexpected love. Has anything ever brought you deeper comfort and rest than being loved? Has, has anything ever made you feel worthy of love? More than actually being loved. Somebody who didn't make you earn it. Somebody who didn't withdraw their affection from you when, when you did the wrong things. But they just loved you. Has anything ever made you feel more worthy of love. This is the lo- this is the longing under the longing, the desire under the desires. You are a being created to feast on love, and as such, you cannot be free from that longing. There is no such thing as autonomy. There is no such thing as independence. You will always anchor your love on some hope. You will always, through that desire. Pursue some hope to have that desire satisfied. The only question is which doorpost you're going to nail your earlobe to. The only question is, is who you are going to present yourself to as a bond servant because you will always pursue the fulfillment of that desire. The point of Romans 6 is that the Lord has delivered you from the prison of your disordered desires, right? Before the work of Christ, before you believed in Jesus, you were in Adam, and in Adam, you only had one doorpost you could nail your ear to. (laughs) You only had one master that you could present yourself to and say, fulfill these deep desires, and that master was, was sin. And the end result of sin is always death, more separation. And so you went through the insane process of doing everything you'd already done, hoping that eventually you'd get something you'd never gotten. You you would pursue more things. You would just amp it up, right? I need more success. I need more experience. I need more vacation. I need more, right? I got to keep what I have and get more. This insane treadmill that never gets you to your destination. You were in Adam and in Adam you were in the insane asylum, trapped to to these behaviors that never got you what you wanted. The point of Romans 6 is that you're no longer in Adam. You're now in Christ. Because He died for your sin and rose again for your justification. When you believed in Him, you are in Him. So positionally, you are completely free in Christ. But practically, you have to learn how to walk in that freedom. You have everything in Christ. To have your deepest desires met, you have to learn how to have your deepest desires met in everything you've already been given in Christ. Verse 19, Paul drives home this contrast. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, right, in Adam, leading to more lawlessness, so now, Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading 
to sanctification. Once you presented your members. Now again, Paul's talking about this word soma, the body. He's not necessarily, it's, it's metaphorical. The body is, is this tool with which we act in and act on the world around us. Right? So stop presenting the members of your body uh, to lawlessness. Right? Or as he says, as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Right? He's describing not only who we were in Adam, but any time we present ourselves to our disordered desires. Right? And that, and that includes, right, all of them. Sexual disordered desires, physical disordered desires, moral disordered desires, right? Um, anytime we present ourselves to those things, it, it only results in more lawlessness, more death, right? What's interesting is that in this context, Paul is actually answering the question of the religious Jew who's asking, what about the law? What about the law? Doesn't the law make me better? Doesn't obeying rules make me better? Doesn't performing make me better? Doesn't working harder, doing better make me better? And implicit in his response is that even presenting yourself to your rule keeping to make yourself better only makes you worse. Right? Your law keeping is only leading to more lawlessness. All of your self-improvement projects, even the religious ones, they don't get you where you want to go. That's just another expression of your disordered desires, trying to seek autonomy and independence from God instead of humbly resting on God to receive instead of to earn. Now we're going to get into this a little bit more next week as, as we dig back into the, the idea of the law. But, but the end of the verse fills out this comparison, right? He says at the end of the verse, now, Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Nail your ear to the right doorpost, right? Present your members as slaves uh, to righteousness. So we talked about this word righteousness last week. I'm not going to try to re-unpack that. If you missed last week's sermon, I recommend you go back and engage that. But it's the idea of of um, not only being made right, but acting right. So it includes um, caring for and loving others and, 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 and becoming a force for life in a broken world filled with death, right? But present your members as slaves of righteousness leading to sanctification. Sanctification is the key word of, of this section, chapters 6, 7, and 8 that we are currently in. And it's worth pausing to make sure we know what it means, right? Sanctification. So sanctification is uh, the Greek word hagiosmos, um, which the root of it, hagios, is a word that means holiness. Right? So sanctification is the process by which we are being made holy. Now, holy is one of those really, really religious words that I don't think most people have any concept what it really means, <laughs> right? We just think of holy as something that's, that's totally morally pure, and, and that, that's not far off, that's not wrong. Um, but we need to remember holy, the root of holy means set apart, right? So God is holy because he's completely set apart from sin. He doesn't have any disordered desires. He's, he, does, he has no rebellion in him. He is completely attuned to and aligned with love because he is love. Everything in him is, is aligned not only in life, but he is life. He is holy. Right? We're not just talking about something that is abstract moral purity. We're talking about something that is pure. 
pure in its truest and deepest essence. God himself is love. Everything in him is aligned with the producing of the fullness and flourishing of life because it's the expression of who he is. Sanctification is the process by which we are being freed into that purity. Sanctification is the process by which we are being set apart. Often in scripture we see things declared holy. Um, and it's important to remember that, that, again, we're not talking about this abstract sense of, of moral purity. We're talking about being set apart. So like when God looked at Moses and he's, and you know, the burning bush thing, you know, God, the burning, God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush and, and, you know, Moses walks in and is like, oh, what is this? And God's like, man, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground right now. Now, is that dirt especially pure? Like, if you planted something there, would it just grow radically? Like, you know, like Jack and the Beanstalk type, whatever you... No. It means that that ground had been set apart for a specific, pure purpose. Right? God sets apart from, from impurity the purpose for, for, um, for goodness. Sanctification is the process by which God is, is helping us be set apart for this experience of purity so that we can be aligned with life instead of death, so that we can experience the blessings of all that God has created for us, so that we can be what we were created to be, so that we can walk as those who are image bearers of God instead of trying to compete with God to be like God. It is the process of us being transformed back into the image of God, or more specifically, as Paul is going to get to in Romans 8, it is the process where we are being conformed to the image of Christ, the firstborn among many brethren. We were created in the image of God, and when we believe in Jesus, we are recreated in the image of, of Christ. Right? We now bear the image of Christ, the firstborn. Speaking of the one who rose from the dead, the firstborn we also will be raised from the dead, of a family that was made in his likeness. All right, so it's worth comparing. So at the beginning of the book, chapters 1 through 5, the critical word in chapters 1 through 5 uh, was righteousness and justification. Now those are two different English words, but they come from the same Greek word, or, uh, the dikaios, dikaiosis and dikaionos. Um, one means righteousness, the other means to, to justify. Um, righteousness and justification were the essential questions grappled with in, in, ver in chapters 1 through 5, and, and uh, that the, the tension was brought to a head in, in Romans 3.26 with the question, how can a just God justify sinners? Right? How could a just God declare unrighteous people righteous without himself becoming unrighteous? And the answer, of course, was through the substitutionary death of Christ, that that he not only forgave us, he paid the price of our forgiveness. He stepped into our unrighteousness. He became the embodiment of our sin. He paid the full price of justice, dying in our place and completely satisfying the just demands against our cosmic treason by becoming the embodiment of that cosmic treason. And once he had satisfied that justice, he was raised from the dead, right? So the answer, how can a just God justify the unrighteous? He became the embodiment of their unrighteousness. He paid the price for it. He suffered in their place and died and rose again so that, so that he could take their sin and then give them his righteousness 
as a gift. Grace. Right? That's why it says we are justified by grace through faith. God gives it to us freely as a gift, and the only way for us to receive it is, is to receive it by faith, to trust the promise and the one who gives it. Not by earning it, not by deserving it, not by claiming it, but simply by receiving it. Again, that moves us back to a place of humble dependence, which was the creational intent. Brings us back to that Genesis 1 and 2 purity of, of coming to God in a place of humble dependence to receive from God and not perform for God. To humbly rely on God instead of trying to compete with God. Right? We are saved by grace through faith. We are made just or we are declared righteous because Christ is our righteousness. And that leads to our standing before God. Romans 5.2 we now stand in grace. That's my position before God. Not my record, but his record. Not, not my behavior, but, but his obedience, right? I stand in grace. I am no longer in Adam. I am now in Christ, and I stand in a position of unreserved, unlimited acceptance, right? So in Romans 6.6, 6, where Paul says that our old self was crucified together with Christ, that we are now new creations, what he's saying is that God now sees us as just. He doesn't see who we were. He doesn't see who we are in our current sin. He sees who we've been declared to be in Christ. When God looks at me as a believer in Christ, he sees Christ. I stand in grace. My sin is paid for, past, present, and future. My acceptance is sure because Christ is risen, which means God is satisfied in regard to my sin because Christ became the embodiment of my sin. I stand in grace. I am justified by grace through faith. I am positionally righteous. You following me there? That means my position before God. Even though my practical reality doesn't match my positional reality. In other words, I'm not dikainos. I am not perfectly just and righteous. I don't, I am not perfectly obedient. I am not yet what I've already been declared to be. But that doesn't change God's declaration over me. My current reality does not, my current personal experience does not negate or define my position before God in Christ. Y'all, it's really, really important that we recognize that our justification is the foundation of our sanctification. Man, we get into all kinds of trouble when we mix that up. When we start thinking that our justification is dependent on our sanctification, that somehow I need to be good enough to earn what God only gives as a gift. And that if I'm really messing up and I'm struggling and I'm, I'm just having a, a really hard time and I'm making sinful choices and I'm doing all these bad things, that that's how somehow changes my position before God. Your position wasn't earned by your obedience and it cannot be lost through your disobedience. Your justification is the foundation of your sanctification. Your sanctification is the process by which God is changing you. So that you are going to become more of what he's already declared you to be. He's declared you free in Christ. Sanctification is the 
process by which he is freeing us practically, personally, experientially into what he's already declared is true of us and has already won for us. He is seeking to free us into the righteousness that is ours in Christ, but is not yet ours in practice. So justification is something that we receive by grace through faith. A gift that we simply must receive in humble dependence. Sanctification is a process we must engage by faith-driven obedience. So when he says, present yourselves as the members of your body, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Paul's saying something profound here. He's saying that your experience of sanctification is hinging on your desire to present yourselves by faith to God in obedience. That you can, put it in other passages, other terminology, you can grieve the Spirit. Now you're not going to lose the Spirit, but you can grieve the Spirit. You're not going to lose your justification, but you can thwart your sanctification. It isn't something we earn. It's something we receive, right? If you notice the language, he says, um, you don't earn your sanctification, you don't accomplish your sanctification. This process leads to your sanctification. It is the same faith that brought you justification that will lead you into your experience of sanctification. So let me just close this with the same question I opened with. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be set free from who you were in Adam into the beauty and in sometimes the terrifying freedom of grace in Christ? Because there's a lot of reasons you don't want to be set free. There's a lot of reasons you're going to fight against your sanctification. There's a lot of reasons. Right, think about it like this. You, you, you have a cell in which you entrap yourself and in that cell you feel safe and in that cell you feel like you know, you got your awards on this wall and, and your accomplishments on this wall and, and your self-protections on this wall and a little shrine to your hurts over here in this corner. And that feels like home and God wants to lead you over the threshold out of your cell. But it is a terrifying step because you are leaving behind everything you thought made you secure. You're leaving behind everything you thought made you important. You're leaving behind. It makes you like, like you know, let's, let's put it in very practical terms. You know why some of you have a really hard time forgiving somebody? It has nothing to do with forgiveness. It has everything to do with your resentment. It's not their sin, it's yours. Yes, they sinned against you. Yes, they hurt you. But the reason you're having a hard time is because you don't want to leave your shrine of bitterness because your shrine of bitterness somehow validates your sense of self-worth. Somehow validates your sense of security. It makes you feel powerful. And to abandon that to God, which is the only logical thing to do, by the way, God's the only one that can actually bring justice, right? The person you're refusing to release, they're not in the prison with you. It's only you. Your little shrine of bitterness doesn't hurt them. It only hurts you. Right? But why do we keep it there? Because it's terrifying to actually walk in complete and humble dependence on a God and say, God, you're the only one that can bring justice. I release this to you. 
I'm going to stop competing with you and I'm going to humbly rely on you. I'm going to stop trying to be you and I'm going to let you be you. I'm going to get out of the seat of the judge because that's your seat and it's killing me to try to sit there. You, you follow me? There's a practical application. There are thousands of them. There are so many ways that we resist the process of grace that will set us free and it's because our disordered desires keep us in love with the wrong slave master to meet our deep needs for security, significance, self-worth, and importance. Listen, y'all, your obedience, which obedience here doesn't mean obeying rules. Obedience here means responding to God's love with a responding love, responding in faith. Your obedience leads to sanctification. It opens the door of your cell. And as terrifying as it is to take up your mat and walk free. The other side is glorious. True freedom doesn't come from autonomy from God, but humble dependence on God. True security doesn't come from protecting yourself, but abandoning yourself completely to the God who protects you. True rest doesn't come from running to your familiar and sinful comforts. True rest comes from feasting on the love of God and allowing the love of God to rebuild and refresh your soul. Present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. We've received as believers the gift of justification. Now let's stand in grace and experience the gift of sanctification. We'll keep digging in next week, y'all. Let me close this word of prayer, and then we will um, share communion and, and uh, close in song this morning. Father, thank you that um, you are so incredibly gracious and patient with us. You give us what we don't deserve before we even asked you to give it. You loved us when we didn't love you and simply said, hey, do you want to receive my love? And having received your love and having received the full benefit of the death and resurrection of Christ, you continue to be patient with us, inviting us gently but persistently out of ourselves out of the little prisons that we've created, out of our slavery to autonomy and independence, our slavery to these false images of ourselves, the insanity of trying to get life in places that only give death. I thank you for your patience. I thank you for your persistent love. I thank you that grace is always surprising. And then when that surprise actually sinks into our soul, it is radically freeing. Awaken us to the beauty of that love this morning, Lord, that we might be able to see the ways we are enslaving ourselves to the things that are robbing us of life. That we can see the beauty of the invitation of becoming bondservants of Christ. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.